This audio podcast is from the River Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope God uses it to encourage and grow your relationship with Christ. For more information about the River Church, visit us online at theriverdfw.com or facebook.com backslash theriverdfw. Well, good morning, River Church. Man, I am glad to be here today. How about you? God's good, isn't he? It's not a bad way to end a worship set right there, man. I'm, I'm thankful to be here, man. I love, just love the Lord, man. I'm thankful for him. And um, also, how about that service? You see him running out here with that table like that? That's great, man. Service with a smile. So we are starting off our new series. We, if you're here last week, we, we just had finished our series brand new, um, talking about the new year and about how, you know, God doesn't really want New Year's resolutions for you. Not that they're bad or anything's wrong with them, but he doesn't want to improve you from the outside. He wants to improve you from the inside and he wants to make you brand new. And that's, so we had just finished that series and, and, and I, I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. We're starting off a new series this week though, in the book of Daniel. And so what, what I'm excited about is I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from the life of Daniel. And, and really something that's kind of fun is at the end of the service, we're going to be dedicating a little baby boy named Daniel. Works out, right? Kind of fun. And so uh, anyways, uh, for a lot of us, and myself included, for a long time, the only things I really knew about Daniel were or was that there was a lion involved and what VeggieTales taught me. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. And so, but the truth is, is there's so much that we can learn from Daniel. And, and as I was thinking about where to go after we finished up our brand new series, I was thinking about the culture that we're living in right now. I'm thinking about how crazy our world is right now. I was thinking about how unsure um, and how difficult it is kind of for the Christian to navigate the world that we live in, especially just as a Christian right now, it just feels like you maybe really can't do anything right. Like, like no matter where you are, wherever you fall on cultural issues today, if you're on the right side, the left side, the upside, the downside, whatever side you're on, there's somebody calling you a bigot and a racist and hateful. And like, there's, there's just no winning, it feels like right now. And so as I was thinking about where we were, where our culture is, I thought about the book of Daniel. And I read a book a few years ago called The Daniel Dilemma. And so this series is based on that book. Um, and, and I thought that it would be so relevant to where we are today. Because the question for this series is how do we stand firm in our faith in an ever-shifting culture where there's this tension for the Christian on how to live godly and, if we're honest, an ungodly culture. And, and what I love about Daniel, when you look at Daniel's life, is Daniel didn't just suffer through culture. And so what I mean by that is the culture he lived in was against everything he believed in. And he didn't go, oh, woe is me. I'm just going to go hide out somewhere. He he didn't feel sorry for himself. He didn't just suffer through it. So sometimes that's what I like to do is just suffer through it, right? Just get through it. But Daniel didn't just suffer through his culture. We actually see Daniel impact and make a difference in his culture. And so that's, that's why I felt like it was a good place for us to start off today. And, and, and when we look at the book of Daniel, he actually starts off in a really tough spot. As a matter of fact, he was in a miserable place for the nation of Israel. And, and Daniel's paying the price because of the sins of his own country. And so what's happening, just real brief, so you can kind of catch up to where we are. What's happening is uh, the nation of Israel had been, a, it had been a country. Um, they had had several kings like King David, King Solomon that were great kings. They also had a lot of bad kings. And eventually the nation of Israel splits into two countries. And eventually both of these countries get conquered by other countries. 
And so right now where we're picking up, the nation of uh, Babylon has just come in and conquered uh, Judah where Daniel was at. And they don't just conquer them, but they're going to exile them. So they're not going to just conquer them and let them stay where they are and be ruled by the new king. But they exile the people. So they take everybody out of the nation, out of the country, and move them to a new place which was miserable because what happened is you're not going to stay home. Like not only are you conquered, not only are you living under a new rule of a new kingdom, but now you've lost your home, you've lost your family, you've lost your history, and you're moved into a completely new place. And so it was really devastating for the people that it happened to. And so that's kind of where we pick up. Daniel's just been exiled from his country, been exiled of his nation that's been conquered. He's been brought into this new place called Babylon. And we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 1, Verses 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And siege was, you just surround it, cut off all the essential supplies. The, the, the city's either going to starve to death or they're going to surrender. They surrendered. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, uh, along with some vessels from the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, carried, carried them to the land of Babylon to the house of his God and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. And so the Bible says that God gave this nation over to Babylon. And then did you notice what the king did? Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in and takes all the things out of the temple and brings them and puts it in their own temple. And what that was doing is there's a way that they could disrespect, kind of disrespect God, mock God a little bit, kind of like trophies. Like, oh, we're going to take all your stuff, put it in our, 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 our God's house, right? Nebuchadnezzar is not a great dude. Uh, Daniel 1, 3 through 6 says, And the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. And they were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them, the descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they take all of the Israelites and they make them their slaves, except for a few. Ashpenaz, the chief of the court officials, takes the ones who are good-looking without physical defect, takes the ones who are smart, takes the ones who are intelligent. Is this reminding you of anybody? Right? Come on. No? That's kind of harsh, guys. And so they take the, the best of the best. They're going to place them in the capital, and they're going to try to indoctrinate them with the Babylonian beliefs. And, and after they kind of indoctrinate them, after they teach them their ways, then they get to serve in the palace. And this is their way of assimilating them into the Babylonian culture so that they're going to leave behind their history, forget who they were, and try to get them to abandon their beliefs and their ideals. And now they're serving in the king's palace. And, and as we talk about culture, as we talk about the world that we're in today, I think the first thing that we need to pay attention to, the first thing I want to point out to you is that Satan, the enemy, one thing he does is he uses culture to break us down and he uses the pressure of culture to make us compromise and to indoctrinate you into the beliefs of culture. Culture will always try to indoctrinate you. If you have your notes today, that's the first blank. Culture will always try to indoctrinate you. Oh, you don't believe this? You don't, you don't feel this way? You don't think this is right? How dare everybody else thinks this is right? 
Culture thinks this is right. This is the way things are going. You're so old-fashioned. You don't, you don't get it. You're you. Right? Culture will always try to indoctrinate you. And so one of the ways that they do this is, is it note, if you notice, it says they gave them food from the king's table as a way to assimilate them into their culture. And so they say, hey, you come in here, you're going to eat what we eat, you're going to drink what we drink, and you're thinking, oh, great wine, awesome, great steak, that sounds fantastic, awesome. It was actually not good. It was actually pretty bad. And the reason why is because for Daniel, the food that they're trying to give him breaks every single Jewish dietary restriction. And so Jews, Jewish tradition had some very specific uh, restrictions on what they could and should eat. And so what the king is going to give Daniel is going to break all those rules. It's going to break all those restrictions. And so for Daniel to take that food on, for Daniel to eat that food is going to be to forget about who he was. It would be to turn his back against the scriptures, what the scriptures were teaching him, how he should eat and how he should live his life. To eat this food would be to turn their, his back on his faith's teachings. That's how it starts, right? Just a small step. Hey, just come on. Just forget about those rules and come on, eat this food. It's good, man. Steak's good. Steak is good. Daniel 1.7. Then the chief official gave them other names. So they're going to give them new food. Here, I want you to forget about the food you're supposed to eat. I want you to eat this. And now I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to rename you. Gave them other names. And he gave them, he gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, Abednego to Azariah. And so they start off in their new culture, trying to indoctrinate them to teach them what they should believe, change their food, forget about what the Bible says about what you're supposed to eat. Now I'm going to rename you. And in history... And even now, a name is a very important thing. For one, a name shows a sign of ownership. Who names you? Your mom and dad. You belong to them, right? Not only does a name show signs of ownership, a name tells you who you are. And we see God do this in a lot of different ways throughout the scriptures. When someone becomes a Christian or when someone begins to follow him, God renames them. You know the stories, right? Abram to Abraham. You've got uh, Jacob to Israel. You've got Saul to Paul. And every time it's God saying, I'm going to take you out of where you were. You're mine now. You belong to me now. I'm going to rename you. And now you're not who that name said you were. I'm going to give you a new name. And now I'm telling you who you are. That's what's happening here, except it's in reverse, right? One thing culture tries to do to us is culture tries to change your identity, who you believe you are, who you've been told you are. My son Gideon, his name means God's warrior. And I don't know if he's God's warrior yet, but that joker is a fighter, right? Like he fights baths, <laughs> he fights diaper changes, he fights bedtime, right? He fights every time we're trying to have a meeting in here. He fights that and screams and yells, right? He's a fighter. And then I got Judah, whose name means praise. And that joker has been singing all night long for about two weeks. Am I right, Katie? All night long. Our names tell us who we are. Our names tell us who we belong to. And, and let's be honest, we don't always live up to our names, right? Like my middle name is Blake. Anybody know what Blake means? Fair-haired one. <laughs> that's really funny. How you think that's really funny? <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Right? But we don't always live up to our names. And 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 the Babylonians, one thing wanted, they're trying to do is by changing their names, they're they're trying to change their identities and what they believe about themselves. 
And you might say, Mike, you're being a little bit dramatic. You're being a little, a little overreacting here. It's just a new name, new city, new country. They want to rename. No, listen to what they changed their names to. Listen to what they changed their names to. Daniel. Daniel's name means God is my judge. God is my judge. They changed Daniel's name to Belshazzar, which means lady protect the king. They gave him a girl's name. They changed him from a man's name. They gave him a girl's name. That's one way the enemy works against us is to confuse you, confuse your identity. To Hananiah, Hananiah's name meant Yahweh has been gracious to me. Hananiah was the name that praises God. God has been good to me. God has been kind to me. I'm blessed. I've been blessed by my God. God has been good to me. It's a a name of praise. Shadrach, Shadrach means I am fearful of God. From God is good to me. God has been kind to me. Worship, praise God. I'm afraid of him. His name was a transformation of how he viewed God. Good to me, I need to be scared of him. Mishael, who is what God is? That was a name of confidence in God. Who is what God is means there is nobody like my God. There is nobody like my king. There is no one. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the champion of champions. Who is like my God? Ain't nobody like my God. Amen? They changed it to Meshach, which means I am despised and contemptible. From confidence in God to cowardice about himself. To Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. God is good to me. He helps me. He takes care of me. I can trust in him. To Abednego, which means servant of Nabu, and Nabu is a Babylonian God. From God is my helper, Yahweh is my helper to now I'm the slave of another God. The Babylonians wanted to redefine what the Israelites thought about themselves and what they believed about their God. And here's the thing is that when culture shifts, this is your next blank, when culture shifts, we must know who we are. You don't follow or believe what the world tells you you are. You don't follow or believe what culture tells you you are. What we put our trust in, what we believe in is who God says we are. And what God says you are is God says you are beloved. God says you are a child of God. God says you are a servant of God. God says if you're a Christian in here today, you are saved by grace through faith by our wonderful God. Our God who is kind, who is merciful, who is good, who is gracious, who is worthy of all of our praise and adoration. But the culture, by changing their names, they're not just trying to change who they thought they were. The name change was also telling them who God was trying to change how they viewed God. And sometimes our culture will say, oh, God's a bigot. Your God's a bigot. Oh, your God's mean. Oh, your God's outdated. Your God's not relevant. They try to rename our God and tell us who he is. Culture's shifting. Hey, he's, he's irrelevant. He's, he's out of date. He's out of touch. You still believe that old stuff? You're crazy. That's not who God is. But God's the king of kings. When culture shifts and God tries to tell us who he is, we need to remember that he's the king of kings, that he is good, even if they tell us he's bad. He is merciful. And let me tell you this, he loves you and every other person in this entire world more than they will ever understand. And he's on your side. And he knows what's best for you. (laughs) And he alone deserves all of our praise, all of our adoration. I don't care what anybody tries to rename our God. That's who he is. 
Daniel 1.8, Daniel then determined that he would not defile himself. So they try to rename him. They try to give him new food. Daniel determines within himself, I ain't going to do it. He determines himself not to defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. In spite of everything happening around him, Daniel stays strong. The next thing I want you to know is that when culture shifts, we must reaffirm our convictions. When culture shifts, we must reaffirm our convictions. That's what Daniel does. Hey, it's shifting. You're trying to tell me something. I got to eat this food. You're going to tell me. I'm, no, I know who I am. I know what I believe. I know who my God is. When culture shifts, we have to reaffirm our convictions. Daniel 1, 9 and 10. So Daniel asks, says, hey, I, wanna, I don't want to eat that food. Here's, here was the response. God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. Yet he said to Daniel, my Lord, the king assigned you food to drink, food, excuse me, assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those of the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. <laughs> so he's scared. <laughs> so God gives a favor from Ashpenaz to Daniel. And so he's going to let him eat what he wants to eat. But, but Ashpenaz is scared because he says, if you go on this diet, you look weak and you look not as good as these other guys, I might get killed, which makes sense, right? You know what Daniel's response is? Test me, baby. Check it out. Daniel 11, 1, 11 through 14. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. That's gutsy, isn't it? And he agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. So Daniel's response, test us. Deal with us based on the results. And he had trust in God that he would be faithful to Daniel. And Daniel's forced into a confrontation. Am I going to follow God? Am I going to follow culture? Except the difference between Daniel and us, Daniel's not dealing with like social media trolls. If this goes poorly for Daniel, he dies, right? But he stands strong. And by the way, after the 10 days, Daniel comes out stronger, better looking, healthier, everything better than the other guys, right? That's pretty cool. But what I want to say to you today, River Church, is that as a Christian, culture will always create conflict for us. Culture will always create conflict. And if it never does create conflict, you might need to re-examine some things about yourself. I say that loving, but if we're never ever going against culture, we may not actually be following who God calls us to be. But culture will always create conflicts. But when conflict, conflict comes, we want to respond in the correct way. In this book, uh, The Daniel Dilemma, that this series is based on, uh, the author tells a story of a time that culture created conflict for him, I guess you could say. And he, he was uh, in school, and uh, I, think he was, I think he was in college, but he was working. And he was sitting there while he was working, reading his Bible. And so this guy comes up to him who he had known for a while, was kind of friendly with, but the guy was definitely not a Christian. And so as he's reading his Bible, the guy walks up to him and goes, I can prove to you that you don't believe what that says. 
I can prove to you that you're not a Christian. And so he said, or he thought probably what a lot of us would think. (laughs) I hope he doesn't get me. (laughs) Right. Because he's thinking, man, he's going to pull out some verse. He knows something in here that I don't know that I haven't studied it well enough. And he's going to trick me. He's going to get me. There's something in here that I don't know. And so he's, he's scared, scared, scared. But he goes, you know what? I, I believe it, man. I believe what this says. I'm a Christian. Test me. Go ahead. He says, the guy kind of walks over to him and he looks at him and he slaps him in the face. (laughs) Yeah. And he goes, if you're a Christian, turn the other cheek. Anybody want to try that after church? Go into the store, slap me. I want to prove I'm a Christian. Man, that kind of hurt. Um, but he said, the guy goes, turn, turn the other cheek. If you're a Christian, turn the other cheek. And he said his face was just throbbing, you know. He says, just throbbing. And he goes, he goes, man, you're nuts. <laughs> he goes, you're nuts. But you know what? I believe it. I'm a Christian. And if it means that much to you, go ahead. So he turned the other cheek. And he said, the guy was kind of surprised. And he thought, okay, he's bluffing. And then the guy hauled off and slapped him again. <laughs> And he said, the guy looked at him and goes, man, you're the first real Christian I've ever met. Like, bro, you just going around slapping people? Like, of course, you know. <laughs> but my point is that as Christians, culture is always going to create conflict for us. And when culture shifts, which is constantly shifting, and conflict arises, it's critical. It is critical. It is critical. It is critical that the church and Christians respond the correct way, that we respond the correct way. And there's really two ways that we typically do this. One is, one extreme is getting really dogmatic and being like, if you don't believe this, you're going to hell and God hates you and you're going to burn. And it, you know, anybody ever know anybody like that? Yeah. If you don't, you might be that person, right? right. And you might be right about some of that stuff. I don't know. You, you might be, but let me tell you this, that, that if you're right and you handle it that way, you're still wrong. If you're right, you have like getting on, I know I'm ripping on this, but getting on social media and just posting all kinds of crazy things and acting a fool, that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't do anything good for anybody that certainly doesn't honor Jesus. And if you're right and you respond that way, you're not helping anybody see Jesus through your actions and you're just as wrong as somebody else. But then the other side of it, so there's one side getting real dogmatic and be a jerk. The other side of it is just say, hey man, let everybody in. Grace, 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 grace. We love everyone. And the truth is, that's wrong too. You can't just throw the Bible aside and say, let's just throw out the truth. Like people who do that think it's loving, but that is not loving. That is not kind. Like this whole idea of just moral relativity, it's not, it doesn't make sense, man. Like I was thinking about this and like my son Gideon, right? He's, he's old enough now where he can open the door, the front door, he's like two and a half, and he can get out the front in the front yard. One great thing about my neighborhood that I just love is people love to drive down at like 50 miles an hour. It's my, one of my favorite things, right? Now, you know, that train of thought would be like, Mike, if he wants to open the door and run out in the street, just let him in. That's his truth. (laughs) 
that truth is going to get him killed, man. That's not truth. And for me as his dad to say, have at it, buddy. I don't, I don't want to hinder you from living your best life, you know. It's going to get him killed. That's not very loving for me as his father to do for him, is it? Truth matters. Truth matters. I mean, you can tell me there's no such thing as gravity, but you're the idiot that's stuck to the ground. So what do we do when culture creates conflict? Culture's trying to indoctrinate you. Culture's trying to change your identity, change who they tell you that God is. What do we do? Well, if you have your notes, you already know the answer. The Christian response is grace and truth. Grace and truth. And it's a balance between the two. And and Daniel does this really well. Jesus does this really well too. Like if you look at Jesus' life, he was completely perfect. He was completely righteous. He was God in the flesh. And yet we see Jesus hanging out with prostitutes and sinners and like people who are reviled, like just, you know, who the world would say is just trash, evil people. And yet as he did that, Jesus never once compromised who he was. And yet everyone around him knew they were loved by him. That's a pretty good example to follow. John 1.14 says this, The word became flesh and took up residence among us, praise God, and we observed his glory. Side note, how cool is that? The word became flesh and we got to be around him, man. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of... See, the truth is God's standard for us, the standard on how we live our life. The truth is God's standard, but grace, grace is God's favor. The truth is that God wouldn't let you stay lost in your sin. The truth is he says, I have a standard for you. I'm not going to let you stay here, but grace is him saying, but I'm going to be the one to get you out of it. Grace is him dying on the cross for you while you're still in your sin, while you're still spitting in his face. That's grace. Without truth, we're corrupt, but without grace, we're condemned. Anybody ever heard of the 51% gospel? Here's what a lot of people believe. They believe in this 51% gospel. If Hitler is zero and Jesus is 100, I just got to get to 51%. That is not true. That is not reality. You can't be good enough to get yourself in. Truth, God's standard. Grace, God's favor. Truth without grace is really mean. Truth without grace is really mean, right? Sinner, trash, you're good for nothing. Oh, you're just wretched. Come on now. Truth without grace is mean, but grace without truth is meaningless. But truth and grace together is healing. Truth and grace together is where you find salvation. Truth and grace together is where you find life change. And what I would say, River Church, is that we need to be a place of grace and truth. Because here's the wonderful thing is that grace invites us to be free. But it's the truth that sets us free. Let me give you a really cool example of that found in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. 
Bible says, at dawn, he went into the temple complex and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And then the scribes and Pharisees brought brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked us to trap him in order that he might have evidence, they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And so they trapped this woman in her sin and they bring her to Jesus in order to trap Jesus. Jesus, what are you going to do with her? What are you going to do with her, right? Which I always have the question like, what were they doing in the place that she was doing what she was doing, right? Like it's funny how that, that whole idea of truth without grace, right? There it is. Like what are you guys doing there? Right? It's funny how truth without grace makes us forget about our own sins, right? So they come to Jesus and say, what are you going to do with her, Jesus? Truth would kill her. Grace would break all the rules. Grace would leave to no life change. Grace would leave to everything staying the same. What are you going to do, Jesus? You know what Jesus does? He draws in the dirt. Verse 7, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Hey, if you're perfect, man, you throw the first stone. Go ahead. He invited them to do it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Verse 8, then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men, and only he was left with the woman at the center. So one by one, they leave. And I love, there's a popular theory about what he was writing in the ground. And uh, it's kind of funny that popular theory is that he was writing down their own sins, right? Like writing down their own mistresses. You know? Hananiah, uh-huh, right? <laughs> Guess I'm out of here, you know? I don't know if it's true, but it's really funny, you know? Verse 10, when Jesus stood up, he said, we're a woman where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, Lord, she answered. Well, neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go and from now on, sin no more. And Jesus doesn't embarrass her. He's not harsh with his words. But in the most kind and personal and loving way, he says to her, I know who you are. And I know what you've done. And I know what you're defined by right now. But I don't condemn you. As a matter of fact, I have grace for you. But you got to go leave your life of sin. See, grace says, I know what you've done. Grace says, I know who you are. Grace says, I know what you're defined by, but I still love you. And I still invite you in. You're still welcome here. But the truth says, now go and leave your sin behind. Let it go. Be changed. Be be healed. Be different. I love you too much to let you stay where you are. 
and as Christians and as a church, as culture shifts and as culture demands all sorts of compromise from us, as culture tries to redefine who you are, who I am, as culture tries to redefine who our God is, we as a church, we're going to hold high God's truth. And we're going to hold high God's standard. But we're also going to freely offer grace to everyone who comes in those doors and to all that we encounter. You say, but Mike, what about, what about, I, I, every, everyone pretty much means everyone. <laughs> and the truth is, is that Jesus may even be saying the same thing to you today. <laughs> like maybe you can relate. You're saying, Mike, I need some of that grace. Mike, I need to start living in some of that truth. He may be calling to you today and say, I know you. I know what you're defined by. I know what the world is telling you that you are. I know what you've been giving into, but I still invite you. I still invite you. Maybe you need to respond to that today. Maybe you need to be, maybe you need to start offering a little bit of grace to some people. Maybe you've been coming too hard with the truth and you need to start offering up a little grace. Maybe you know the truth and you need to just start living it, man. Wherever you are today, I want to invite you to stand with us right now. And we're going we're gonna to worship God. But I want you to respond to him wherever you are. Whatever that is for you right now, whatever you're living in right now, I want you to let him form you. I want to let him shape you. I want you to let Jesus sanctify you. And I want you to respond to that truth however you need to. Mike, I need that grace. Mike, I need to live in that truth. Mike, I got to start offering up that grace. Wherever you are, respond, man. If you need anybody to pray with, I'm right down here. We'd love to pray with you. There's others. But as the world's calling us to compromise and change and give in, we're going to offer truth. We're going to offer grace because it's the same thing that Jesus offers to you right now. And that's our king. That's our example. That's who we're going to be. Amen.